Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing School of Rock. Gentlemen, Lawrence, if you play the piano, you can play the keys. I only play classical. So just loosen it up and strut your expertise. But first, how are we doing? I know this would have been more appropriate for me to say at the beginning of June, but happy Pride Month to all of our LGBTQ plus listeners. I hope that this has been an amazing month for you. I hope that uh, we're recording this on Pride Weekend here in Chicago. So uh, wherever you are, whenever you have you know your respective cities Pride Weekend, I hope you're in a place uh, where you can gather with people who make you feel safe and happy and comfortable and celebrated. You deserve to be celebrated. That's my opinion. And it should be the opinion of everyone who you surround yourself with. Surround yourself with people that love you and Every single day will be special. And yeah, so thank you for listening. This is The Musical Man. A happy Pride Month one more time. Just going to throw that out there one more time. We need to talk about something that is not especially great. What we need to talk about is the UK Back to the Future musical that's in development and seems dreadful. I have been grousing about this off and on on Twitter. I mean, this week's subject is fairly dire, but Back to the Future the Musical, from what I can tell, seems brain dead. Here is a quick clip from one of its original songs. This is a brand new song written for the show. It's going to be a mixture of the new stuff, but also, of course, the Huey Lewis and the news tracks that you might be familiar with from the original film's soundtrack. But this is an original song called Put Your Mind to It. Patty, let's play that clip. When you walk, take it slow. Like you're going someplace only you can go. And when you talk, don't be loud. Friends are fine, but don't be part of a crowd. And don't be in a hurry, even when you're running late. You should never worry. George, you gotta concentrate. very much, Patty. My question is, in regards to this song, does this conjure theatrical in your mind? Does it bring up the word theatrical when you hear it in any way? I simply cannot picture this on stage, being staged. What is this? I mean, everything that they have released, they've released a version of Back in Time and The Power of Love. These are not theater songs. These aren't even pop songs that I think would really work in any sort of context on stage. I mean, I'm sure many people said that about ABBA when Mamma Mia was being developed and oh, how we were proven wrong. I love Mamma Mia. But this really does seem to be completely relegated to the world of the radio. And I just... 
I, I'm, I'm really confused as to why we're expected to swallow this as a piece of theatrical entertainment. I'm not opposed to the idea, the basic idea of a Back to the Future musical, but this reeks. This new song, this original song, it stinks. No one wants to hear the songs from the film if they're not being sung by Huey Lewis and the News, and no one wants to hear the original songs, especially if they're going to be this bland. Anyway, speaking of bland, let's get those show facts for School of Rock. Show me the show facts. School of Rock was a 2016 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on December 6th, 2015 at the Winter Garden Theater, where Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats had previously run for 18 years. School of Rock was the first Andrew Lloyd Webber show to premiere on Broadway before The West End since Jesus Christ Superstar in 1971. Why did School of Rock premiere in America first? Because America's child labor laws are more relaxed than those of the West End. If you think I'm kidding, the Wikipedia page goes back to this point at least a couple of times. School of Rock ran on Broadway for 1,309 performances, and the West End production, which opened in 2016, is still running to this day. Quite popular over there. The book was written by Julian Fellows, and it was based on the 2003 film written by Mike White, which is not to be confused with the Nickelodeon series that ran from 2016 through 2018, though I doubt if anyone could stumble into that hyper-specific mental quagmire. The music was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber, of course. The lyrics were written by Glenn Slater. The director of the original production was Lawrence Connor. The musical director was Darren Ledbetter. The choreographer was Joanne M. Hunter. The set design was by Anna Luizos. The lighting design was by Natasha Katz. The costume design was by Anna Luizos, and the original Broadway cast included Sierra Bogus, Alex Brightman, Spencer Moses, Mamie Paris, Taylor Caldwell, Evie Dolan, Carly Gendel, Shonday Wright-Joseph, Ethan Cushman, Bobby McKenzie, Dante Malucci, Brandon Niedrauer, Luca Padovan, Jared Parker, Isabella Russo, Jersey Sullivan, and Corin Wilson. And of course, as always... <laughs> Goodness gracious, I feel bad every single time I go through the cast because I always know that there's going to be at least one or many names that I mispronounce, and it drives me crazy to know that I'm doing that wrong. So I apologize once again. And oh, Tony Nods, let's talk about those. Okay, so School of Rock was nominated for Best Musical. Of course, we know that. Uh, doy, doy, doy. It was also nominated for Best Book of a Musical, Julian Fellows. It was also nominated for Best Original Score, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Glenn Slater. And it was also nominated for Best Actor in a Musical, Alex Brightman. Yeah, unfortunately, despite the fact that the show received four nominations, it took home zero awards, which seems right by me. <laughs> seems more than fair. <laughs> no awards for you, School of Rock. I want to just do a quick rundown of Andrew Lloyd Webber's show history. I want to I cite all of the shows that he has written, whether they premiered on Broadway or not, and we are going to just get a rundown on that, that history. And while we're doing that, we're going to just tally up the shows that were nominated for and ultimately maybe won for Best Musical. So Andrew Lloyd Webber began his career with the show The Likes of Us, which never was produced on 
on Broadway. He followed that up with Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which was a Best Musical nominee. Jesus Christ Superstar and By Jeeves, not nominated. Avita was a Best Musical winner. Tell Me on a Sunday, which eventually became Song and Dance, was nominated for Best Musical. Cats was a winner of Best Musical. Starlight Express was a Best Musical nominee. And then he wrote, <laughs> this is this is kind of a side tangent that I want to go on. Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote a short musical called Cricket. This is a musical that premiered at Windsor Castle and was never further developed after appearing at the 1986 Sidmonton Festival and a charity event known as the Lord's Taverner's Ball. Its music was later incorporated into the show's Aspects of Love and Sunset Boulevard. That show sounds weird. Apparently, you cannot get that show in any form. There is no official, uh, legally available recording of it, and it just sounds hilarious. It all has to do with cricket, and I'm pretty sure when it premiered at Windsor Castle, if I remember, if I remember this right... It was just on a cricket court. So the whole show just took place on the cricket court at Windsor Castle. Could we get any whiter? Let's get back to the show history, that rundown. The Phantom of the Opera, Best Musical Winner, Aspects of Love, nominated but didn't win. Sunset Boulevard, Best Musical Winner. And then we have uh, a string of shows, most of which were never produced on Broadway. We have Whistle Down the Wind and The Beautiful Game, never made it to Broadway. The Woman in White, got it on Broadway, not nominated for Best Musical, though unfortunately. Then we have Love Never Dies, his adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, and then Stephen Ward, which none of those, none of those came across the pond to our side of the world. And now we have School of Rock. That's his most recent show, and of course that was nominated for Best Musical. So in total, Andrew Lloyd Webber's shows have received nine nominations for Best Musical, and four of them have managed to take home the award. Just wanted to give you some extra show facts here this week. Let's talk about the plot of School of Rock. All right, we're going to make this short and sweet. Dewey Finn is our straight slacker, cis, white, male protagonist. And his biggest problem is that everyone is trying to bring him down, man. His band, No Vacancy, has kicked him out. His boss at the local record store just fired him. And to top it all off, his best friend Ned's girlfriend, Patty, wants him to start paying rent if he's going to keep living with them. What a drag. All Dewey wants to do is rock and roll all night and party every day. But in the meantime, he's going to have to earn some quick dough or Patty's going to kick him out. Q. Rosalie Mullins, the principal of a hoity-toity institution for overachieving nerds known as Horace Green School. Rosalie calls hoping to speak with Ned so she can offer Ned a substitute teacher position at Horace Green School, one that pays $900 a week. Uh, cha-ching much? Cuck-a-king? Cuck-a-king? Dewey pretends to be Ned so he can secure the teaching position for himself, showing up hungover the next day before falling asleep in front of his students. Dewey, womp womp, are you crazy? Quick rundown on the students. One of them is bossy. One of them is shy. One of them is rambunctious, one of them is gay, and named Billy, and he loves fashion, and we must protect him from the cruelties of this world. There are other kids, but Billy is the only one who matters. He's no Billy Elliot, but he is an important musical theater Billy. When he returns to the apartment to find Ned surreptitiously playing Guitar Hero, Dewey begs him to jump back into the music game, form a new band, and take down No Vacancy at an upcoming Battle of the Bands. Ned is intrigued. 
But Patty shows up and ruins everything with her bullshit about taking responsibility and paying rent. Ugh, she's such an infuriating shrew. So not rock and roll, Patty. All right, this is taking too long. Let's move a little faster, shall we? Dewey realizes his students all know how to play musical instruments, so he gleefully decides to form a band called, wait for it, wait for it, pause for effect, School of Rock. That's right, he calls the band School of Rock. He also starts to fall for Rosalie, who is a big fan of Stevie Nicks, but has allowed her youthful spirit to die out. Oh, problems. Yada, yada, yada. The parents find out Dewey isn't really Ned, blah, blah, blah. Dewey and the kids play at the Battle of the Bands anyway. And before you know it, Dewey is hired as Horace Green's new band coach. The kids are happy. The parents are happy. And Patty presumably gets eaten by boars. It's the music man without the corny trombones. Man, it's got guitars instead. 76 sweet licks. Get with it, idiots. For the purposes of this episode, I listened to the 2015 original Broadway cast album, I Wish I Hadn't, and the, uh, oh, I suppose I <laughs> I could have rewatched the Tony's performance of You're in the Band, but I have I have seen it. <laughs> Can you tell how, my, how hard I'm trying this week? I, I could have rewatched it, but I forgot to. I, I think I even made a note to myself to rewatch it, but I know I know it. At You're in the Band, I'm familiar with it. I've seen that Tony's number. Don't worry about it. I'm not really dropping the ball here. It's just sort of, the ball is greased and it's slippery in my hands, but I'm not dropping it. Got a firm grip on that slippery, greasy ball. All right. And in that performance, as I recall, Brightman careens against his diminutive co-stars as if they're bumpers in a pinball machine. It's a fair sample of what people could look forward to from the show, namely noise. Not a subtle show. I should say I have seen the Jack Black film but I have not seen it since it was in theaters, and I did not rewatch it, didn't think it was necessary, now you know. Let's talk about the score. I'll be strumming my axe in a basement dive with my totally kick-ass band when an army of A&R men will arrive with pens and contracts in hand. Then they'll whisk me away in a big black and the girls from PR They'll know from the start What a major league star I will be Just wait and see When I climb to the top of Mount Rock And I'm there staring down from the heights With the crowd at my feet And a seven-inch bulge In my lizard skin spandex tights I'll dive off the edge Straight into a crowd That's screaming my name out loud Top of Mount Rock. If you'll recall, the plot of the show kicks off by establishing Dewey as this stubborn, egotistical dope who is fired from his job, kicked out of his band, and given an ultimatum by his best friend and his best friend's girlfriend. And throughout all of this incident, Dewey is singing this song that you just heard when I climb to the top of Mount Rock. 
This is our opening, but it doesn't feel like much of an opening to me. This feels like it should be the song's second number of the evening, since it essentially qualifies as Dewey's I Want song. Well, okay, technically, Mount Rock is the second song we hear after a performance by No Vacancy is sabotaged by Dewey's hammy rock and roll antics, but the band's song, I'm Too Hot For You, is only included on the cast album as a bonus track. Why? I have no idea. It's very confusing. But the point is, my gut is telling me this opening is not as fleshed out as it could be and calls for some tinkering. If I can play Show Doctor for a second, hello there, Dr. Show reporting for duty, I think we'd be better off thematically and it would help us settle in more if we saw Dewey as a kid. At the top of the show, Kid Dewey loves music, wants to be in a band, and is told by his parents, teachers, and friends how this dream is straight up stupid. And we could have this onstage montage where we see Dewey growing older, but never actually changing all that much because he's simply too obsessed with proving everyone wrong and getting what he wants. Everyone could be singing at Dewey during this hypothetical opening until finally, as an adult, Dewey drowns them all out with the top of Mount Rock. Is this concept a bit on the nose, a little bit too full circle? Eh, I just need a better reason to care about Dewey as a character. You can have your protagonist be a jerk who eventually redeems himself, but I want to see how the jerk became a jerk, how he became set in his ways. Backstory, people. Backstory, it's it's quite crucial in most instances. You know where it's not crucial. I don't need to know more about The Grinch. No more adaptations of The Grinch where I learn about The Grinch. No thanks. Mr. Schneebly, perhaps you're not familiar with this kind of institution. Let me explain something to you. Here at Horace Green, our name has come to mean pure excellence in every sense, which we commandeer for quite a lofty yearly fee. When they write those checks, each parent here expects their child to earn a high return. And because they do, the pressure's on for you and me. Here at Horace Green is the kind of C-level musical theater song where you get its point within the first, I wrote 30 seconds, but you kind of get where this is going within the first 20 seconds or less. The song's message is, hi, welcome to our school. This is a song that introduces you to the world of Horace Green. Yes, we're going to be spending a lot of time here, so maybe we should clue you in as to how this world works. We're very prestigious here, huh? And we're all about following the rules here, yeah, yeah. Yep, that's us to a T, all right. This could top out at a minute and no one would complain, but it keeps chugging along until our minds inevitably wander and turn to mush, and we start to think about how badly our bathrooms need to be cleaned rather than paying attention to the show we paid money to see. Sadistically, the song punishes us for drifting off. <laughs> by turning up the volume and heightening its only gag to the point where everyone at the school is in lockstep. That word is used, lockstep, tricky word, <laughs> bit of a red flag word, and they're screeching about law and order or whatever the fuck. It just, they play the game of heightening until it's very clear that they're all sort of manic in their adherence to the rules of the school. It's not funny, is what I'm trying to say. And I resent the show for digging in its heels rather than knowing when to let go and move on.
suppose now that it's time to talk about the song Give Up Your Dreams, I suppose now would be a good time to credit the cast for doing what they can with a show that 100% does not deserve them. Alex Brightman, who is, of course, our current Beetlejuice on Broadway, he is obnoxious here as Dewey in School of Rock, but the character is obnoxious, so I guess there's nothing to be done about that. At least his voice is great, and the material allows him to show off a pretty ridiculous range. But I'm more impressed with Mamie Paris, who almost manages, almost manages to distract from her character's repetitive and wholly unfunny messaging by peeling the paint off the walls with her vocals. She's clearly a huge talent, which is why I wish she wasn't relegated to playing a miserable nag like Patty. Who wants to play Patty, raise your hands. No one, I assume, no no one listening is raising their hands. No one wants to play Patty. This is not a good role for a woman. Write better roles for women. Uh, but in the movie, that's she was like that in the movie. She was a shrew. She was a screeching shrew. She was a Looney Tunes character, you know, holding a frying pan over a fucking cowering husband character. That's what it was. Shut up. Shut up, just shut up, shut up, shut up, just shut up, shut up. Okay, so normally I would play a clip of the song. You know how the show works, right? You hear some clips and then I talk about the songs. Now, but it's time to talk about the song if only you would listen. But I don't want to play a clip for you right just this second. Because listener Jenna pointed out in advance. I actually was just sitting down with the album. I hadn't gotten to this song yet. But she let me know through Twitter how this song, if only you would listen, sounds suspiciously like someone else's story from chess. And she is absolutely right about that. It, it, this comparison stinks to high heaven. Let's hear a bit of If Only You Would Listen right now. I got so much to say We had that established. And now let's compare it to the chorus, the sort of core melody from someone else's story. In a way, it's someone else's story. I don't see myself as taking part at all. Yesterday, a girl that I was fond of. I 
right? That's pretty ghastly. This kind of coincidence, quote-unquote, big air quotes, big, 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 this sort of coincidence shouldn't come as a surprise to those who are familiar with Andrew Lloyd Webber, a man who has been consistently charged with accusations of plagiarism. I'm sure his fans would chalk it up to jealousy, a desire to raid a wealthy composer's velvet-lined pockets. Oh, Webber's the victim here, can't you see? But after you hear about these other coincidences, I'm sure you will disagree with that sentiment. The estate of Giacomo Puccini filed a lawsuit regarding a two-bar passage from the composer's 1910 opera, The Girl of the Golden West, a passage Weber allegedly cribbed for the song The Music of the Night from The Phantom of the Opera. The piece of music from The Girl of the Golden West is known as Kello Cetasati. God, I know that I mangled that. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Uh, So that's the specific piece of music that he presumably ripped off. That lawsuit was settled out of court, and the details were never released to the public. So who knows how much Andrew Lloyd Webber had to pay the Buccini estate to get his ass out of this mess. Now, I listened to Kello... What am I saying? Kellogg's? I cannot... Oh, I'm just a disaster this week in terms of pronunciation. I listened to Kello Cetasati for the sake of confirmation, but I didn't pick up on this particular similarity. My ears are not nearly as fine-tuned as I would like. It's true. These other examples, however, are much more obvious to my untrained ears. Here's another one. Members of Pink Floyd have pointed out how a riff from their 1971 track Echoes is radically similar to the famous organ riff from the Phantom of the Opera's titular song. Here is a fabulous quote from Pink Floyd's own Roger Waters. Quote, Yeah, the beginning of that bloody Phantom song is from Echoes. Dun, 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 dun. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. It's the same time signature. It's 12-8. And it's the same structure, and it's the same notes, and it's the same everything. Bastard. It probably is actionable. It really is. But I think that life's too long to bother with suing Andrew fucking Lloyd Webber. Quote. Life is too long to sue Andrew Lloyd Webber. Love that. Let's actually get these clips. So I've, I've pulled these clips. Let's get uh, the Echoes track first. Let's get that sampling of Echoes. <laughs> hear the organ riff, which I'm sure we all know from Phantom of the Opera right here. I hear it. I think this is more than a coincidence. So there you go. (laughs) Let's move on to our next example. We're going to sit in this for a while, by the way. Songwriter Ray Rep claimed Andrew Lloyd Webber stole another piece of the Phantom of the Opera melody from his song, Till You. Rep fought it out in the courts for eight years years before ultimately losing this case. Let's get let's get the Phantom of the Opera clip first. So let's get that here. And sleep 
Patty. And now let's get the clip from Ray Rep's song. And again, the name of this song is Till You. Let's get that here. My soul was empty. My body broken. My heart had no one. Till you. You soothe my sorrow. that too. I think that's pretty obvious as well. All of these disputes are fascinating, but one I must highlight before we move on involves the song Open Up the Gates from Andrew Lloyd Webber's Whistle Down the Wind. You may remember me citing that during the sort of very fast and loose show history that I provided. Can you hear the obvious influence in this track? Patty, play that track. Coming to you, try this on for size. truly shocking to me and it has been for years. Jurassic Park was released in 1993 and Whistle Down the Wind first premiered in Washington, D.C. in 1996. So I can certainly imagine a scenario in which Weber cribbed from John Williams. Mr. Weber, your reputation stinks to high heaven. Stinks like fish, it does. If only you would listen, it feels like Weber and Slater are trying to go for a William Finn 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee vibe. They want us to care about these kids, which is a logical goal. That's reasonable. You want the audience to care about your characters. Yes, obviously. But this song cannot compare with the likes of Spelling Bee's I'm Not That Smart or the I Love You song. The kids of Spelling Bee are endearing because their ganglier, doofier qualities never overshadow their tender-hearted and reflective nature. They're all very distinct and bordering on being, you know, a little bit of sketches, a little bit of cartoons in Spelling Bee. But what's so universal about them, what makes them so relatable is that when you sort of brush past all of that, when you get past their uh, goofier exteriors, you know that they all have a lot of heart to them and you really do come to care for those kids when you watch Spelling Bee. The School of Rock kids are supposed to be more grounded by comparison. We're not supposed to think of them as cartoons necessarily, but they don't come off nearly as endearing or distinct as the Spelling Bee kids. The School of Rock kids, you don't pop, baby. I know you're rock and roll, but you don't pop. And when these kids go all Spring Awakening Junior on me during If Only You Would Listen, it isn't affecting at all. It speaks to the writing team's unwillingness to deliver more than what is expected by the most detached members of their audience, the adults who are satisfied by a motion toward substance rather than actual substance. What's more important to you, experiencing a night of theater or saying you went to the theater? For these people, the answer is always B. I went to to the theater. Oh, yeah? How was it? What was it about? What did it make you feel? Eh, it was okay. 
there were some loud moments and some sad moments and happy moments. And then afterwards, we all had McDonald's. McDonald's, yum. I hate these people. And I hate that on certain days, I'm no better than these people. I hate my own humanity. To the song Stick It to the Man, I realized, oh, this show is basically for babies. It helped me a lot, this realization. It didn't result in me cutting the show any slack, but the pressure to engage with it seriously was effectively lifted, and I appreciated that. You know, even when a show appears to be totally, almost aggressively commercial and inconsequential, one tries to approach it with a certain level of high-minded inquiry, but after a while, you have to admit you have found yourself in the trenches of mediocrity and accept your fate. There's nothing to be done, the money has already been spent, the die has has been cast. All that said, I do object to this especially bland bit of lyricism from Slater. Quote, had it with the hipsters? Stick it to the man. Sick of corporate culture? Stick it to the man. Get up off your iPad and stick it to the man. I can't deal with writers using the term hipster as if it's this magic punchline. A punchline that doesn't need a setup because it's so damn funny on its own and it will leave anyone who hears it in stitches. Here's the one word joke, hipsters. Even in 2015, we should have known this was obscenely hack. And in regards to the line, get up off your iPad, that is, well, that's just confounding to me. So uh, let me get this straight. Is iPad, that's supposed to be a substitute for ass? Get up off your ass, get up off your iPad. Well, that doesn't work, Slater. I think you know it doesn't work. Uh, Here's an alternate lyric for you, one that does make sense. How about throw away your iPad? It still sucks, but at least it's not baffling. Has the microphone been tested? Yeah. What about the stand? Yeah. Please sit hand and rested and await my next command. Are the pyrotechnics ready? I'll check. sing to the routine. Yeah. I'm counting on you, Sophie. Don't screw up the fog machine. Duh. Who's got the speaker cable? Come on, this is hard. I'm ordering Get extra if you're able. Put it on your mother's card. Right. What about the song list? Printed like I said. Oh. If you brought the wrong list, I swear to God you're dead. Got the flanger, yep. the phaser, yep. the pedals and effects. Yep. Make sure he remembers or I'm breaking both your necks. Sure. Keep your voices resting. majority of the School of Rock score is rote and forgettable, Time to Play is heinous. It's heinous. It's an absolute chore that turns what should be, at best, a 20-second scene transition into an utterly pointless 
full-length production number. It's Kids Bop meets The Wheels on the Bus, and it sets my teeth on edge. And I hate to say it, because she is a kid and deserves another chance at bat, but Isabella Russo's performance as Summer is super stiff and off-putting. If this kid is such a Veruca Salt nightmare, this character, this is the bossy kid. She, you know, she's the manager of the band. She's always bossing people around that summer. So if she's supposed to be this very entitled Veruca Salt nightmare, why is the delivery on the part of Russo so robotic? It's like Russo is more concerned with getting the words out than giving them any flavor. You, get over here now. Do this thing. Don't forget to do this, and don't forget to do that. And if you do not do this, and I'm gonna smack you. Da 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 da. You get what I'm fucking saying. Let's stop dragging the kids, Jonathan, and go back to dragging the adults, shall we? I'm convinced Andrew Lloyd Webber and Slater knew time to play, had no business staying in the show, and only kept it in because they were stretching to achieve a two-hour runtime. How could you possibly justify its inclusion otherwise? Nothing is going on in this fucking song. We're not learning anything. The story isn't advancing. There's no emotional weight. It's kids tackling a to-do list, for fuck's sake. They're running errands. Go over here and do this thing now. Over there. No, over there now! Back when I was younger Wild and bold and free I can still remember How the music used to be Chords like rolling thunder Cloud beyond control Every note and lyric Branded right across my soul School of Rock makes time for Rosalie to reflect on her sadness, this concern that she has plateaued emotionally and lost her sense of self in the process. Where did the rock go is properly adult and more capable of inspiring reflection in an audience than anything else in the show. It may not be especially memorable in a melodic sense, but it does help Rosalie stand apart from Marion Peru, her more thinly drawn musical theater ancestor. I would say it's the best song in the show, I guess, but that's some pretty faint praise. Imagine me splayed out in bed, and I lift my heavy, heavy head, it's the weight of a bowling ball, and I croak out the phrase, best song, and then I collapse and choke on my own spittle. That's how enthused I am to deliver that news to you. It's the best song. Ah, kill me. Baby, we was making straight A's, but we were stuck in a dumb day. To memorize your lies I feel like I've been hypnotized 
finally, we have the Big Battle of the Band song that the School of Rock band sings, which is called School of Rock slash Teacher's Pet. The band, School of Rock, in the musical School of Rock, sing a song called School of Rock slash Teacher's Pet. You got that? Great. It's a sad state of affairs when Weber and Slater go out of their way to write all of these original rock songs for their adaptation, only to be upstaged by the one tune they borrowed from the film. School of Rock slash Teacher's Pet is catchier and way more fun than anything leading up to it, which is why I felt a little bummed when it unceremoniously came to an end. I expected more solos from the kids, a third go-around with the chorus. Come on, this is the one moment where you can justify being indulgent. Instead, the show pulls the plug so we can get a tired reprise of Stick It to the Man. No thanks, we're all full up on that one. No more teachers, dirty looks, suck my iPad, eat my shit, fuck my butt, nah, 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 enough. The only clear memory I have of the film is the band's performance of the Mooney Suzuki's It's a Long Way to the Top If You Want to Rock and Roll. So I was disappointed to find it wasn't included here. Maybe it was a rights issue, I don't know, no clue, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who expected to hear it. And then, as I said, we have three bonus tracks here at the end. We have I'm Too Hot For You. As I mentioned earlier, this is technically supposed to be the first song we hear in the show. This is sung by the band No Vacancy within the context, the universe of the show. But the fact that it's been relegated to bonus material status here, this would indicate that a change was made at a certain point. I don't know. Who knows? I'm too hot for you. I'm Too Hot For You. It reuses the melody from I've Been In Love Too Long, a song written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Don Black for Marty Webb's 1981 album Won't Change Places. Why not hear a little bit of that? Why the fuck not? Somebody's heart I'm not you 
it. Fun fact, on the album cover for Won't Change Places, Marty Webb, she is sitting on top of a very big, very fake horse statue. Hashtag big horse. And then we also get like a radio single version of If Only You Would Listen. Not sure what the point of this would be unless they were hoping for a breakout hit. I don't know. Fun fact, musical theater songs don't really break out like that anymore. It would be fun if they did. It would be just as fun as a fun fact, but they usually do not. Remember when they tried to do this very same thing to Defying Gravity? When Atina Menzel did a pop version of Defying Gravity that cut out all the more explicit references to the plot of Wicked? Stay in your lane, musical theater songs. We'll respect you more in the long run. That's my opinion. There's also a third bonus track on the cast album, but... I'm not going to talk about it. You're never going to get me to talk about it. So there. Nya, nya, nya. Ow! Oh, ow, my leg bones! <laughs> no! Stop! <laughs> she said sorry! <laughs> Problematic! Now that we've talked about School of Rock, as much as I want to talk about School of Rock, I refuse to talk about it any further, beyond my final thoughts, which we'll get in a second. Now it's time to hear from our sponsors, 5678... Orange Grove breakfast morning. Oh, no, I'm messing this up. I hope our sponsor doesn't mess this up. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Patty's holding up a very uh, big piece of paper and on that piece of paper, very big words, it says just five, six, seven, eight coffee. Apparently we're not doing the, we're not doing the breakfast variation anymore. Oh, apparently we're not doing that anymore. Okay. So we're going back to standard five, six, seven, eight coffee. Take it away this week's uh, representative. God, I'm not doing well this week. Sorry about this, Patty. Take it away. It's me, Beetlejuice, hoo back from the dead to tell you a little bit about 5678 Coffee. You know, I was walking through the lab late one night, and I saw a demon with a big ass, and I said to that demon, you can't handle the truth, hoo and then a bug crawled out of my butt, and I chomped on it, and I started choking, and the demon, oh, the demon said to me, what can I do for you, Beetlejuice, 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 hoo and I said, what you can do is you can give me a cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee. It's the only thing that's going to wash down this cockroach with any sort of yummy, gummy, sweet, salty flavor. That's right, I put salt in my five, six, seven, eight coffee, and the demon obliged. The demon gave me a delicious cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee, hoo and that's when the heat was on, baby. I like my five, six, seven, eight coffee. Piping hot. One for the money, two for the show. Ocean's 13. Ha ha! Beetlejuice! I sat down with my five, six, seven, eight coffee, and I watched all of my favorite movies, and I thought to myself, what a wonderful world. That's me, Beetlejuice, all right. Hoo-ah! And I'll see you never again on Beetlejuice Talks Coffee. That's right. You've been listening to a mini podcast within the podcast this whole time. Hoo-ah, hoo-ah. Hey, did you see a Bronx tale? Now that's a musical. Da, 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 da. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> final thoughts. Final thoughts. Final farts. Regarding School of Rock. School of Rock is decidedly not good most of the time, and occasionally outright awful. All I wanted going in was at least one song that stuck with me, something marginally catchy I could hum when all was said and done. That's all I wanted. If only you would listen wound up being that song, but it's a ripoff of someone else's song. So no dice as far as that goes, School of Rock. You get no points 
for being catchy. You know, the only other catchy part of this song is when Dewey has one of the kids play that that fucking famous guitar riff. Bam, 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 bam. I kept humming that. That's not original either. So not really doing all that well overall show. But, and this is important for me to say, if a child is introduced to musical theater through School of Rock and it inspires them to engage with other shows and become a fan of the form, I cannot turn my nose up if that child grows up to have fond feelings for School of Rock. Our love of the musical must start somewhere. We were all babies once. But... If you're a grown-ass adult who was introduced to and came to love School of Rock, and if you think it's, like, I don't know, important, an important piece of the canon, I don't know what to do with you. Normally, I would try to be open-minded to differing opinions, but I'm finding it difficult this week. When you think about it, a fair amount of Weber's shows are meant for children. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Cats, Starlight Express, his work on The Wizard of Oz. Dude loves writing shows that are distinctly geared toward young theatergoers, which is not so something you could say about a lot of composers. I admire Weber for it, even if the quality of the material varies wildly from show to show. Have you heard his songs for The Wizard of Oz? Hoo boyo. Now, listener Lily asked me via Twitter, can you think of anyone less suited to the IP of School of Rock than Andrew Lloyd Webber? And my immediate answer was Duncan Sheik. Can you imagine Duncan Sheik trying to tackle School of Rock? All of the children sounding like they're <laughs> like they're leaning over tombstones. They're all pale. They all have pink bags under their eyes. A dead tree is hanging above them. Why is the school closing? The school would close for some reason. (laughs) I just can't imagine that. That seems even more ridiculous to me. You know who probably would have been better suited to writing a School of Rock musical? Kyle Gass and Jack Black under the banner of Tenacious D. I think that would have made a lot more sense. Or like maybe Weird Al Yankovic? I'm not kidding. Weird Al Yankovic needs to write for Broadway at a certain point. Music and lyrics by Weird Al Yankovic. Come on, Weird Al! Something to think about! Now, in 2016, of course, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical, of course, we all know this, duh What was it? Correct. It was Hamilton, and the other nominees that year were Bright Star, Waitress, Shuffle Along, or The Making of the Musical Sensation of 1921, and all that followed... That is the full title of Shuffle Along. Should it have won? Should School Have Rock won? Should School of Rock the Musical have won over Hamilton? What do you think? What do you think? I think. Do you think? I think. School of Rock the Musical should have won the Tony Award for Best Musical over Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. I think my answer is no! That's my answer. Alright, let's rank the show, shall we? Yes, I'm gonna put this at number 19 on our list, right between Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and The Goodbye Girl. So, School of Rock, you are absolutely in the lowest tier of our ranking at this point, so congratulations to you. I realize that this is probably one of the longer-running shows in Broadway history. It's probably on the Wikipedia list. I just now realized I didn't look it up, and I'm not gonna look it up and you can't make me ow my leg bones ow stop it Uh, show related ephemera now I scoured YouTube and I was trying to find something interesting and by interesting I mean 
Let's replace that word with something that actually means something. Fun! Fun. That's a better word. So I did find something very dorky and goofy and fun. It's a Good Morning America presentation. It's this Andrew Lloyd Webber Broadway mashup of School of Rock, Cats, and Phantom. So we have, I don't know who this actor is. I didn't confirm. We have someone else playing Dewey other than Alex Brightman. And he is singing You're in the Band. But eventually, the cats from Cats show up. And they're dancing. And <laughs> at a certain point, the Phantom of the Opera comes in. I'll just let you hear some of it. Take a look at this music and let your mind expand. Awesome. You're in the band. Yeah, dude. Okay. Now, who's going to be my drummer? Awesome. Sit your butt at the stands and try to whack out a beat. Not bad. Well, I'm going to need some backup singers. Anybody? Sing. When the day's hustle and bustle is done, then the gummy cats work is but hardly begun. Sing for me. Sing. Touch me. It's so easy to leave Backup singer, backup singers, groupie. There it is. It really, it actually, now that I think about it, it's quite charming, and it's the only bit of School of Rock material I would return to at this point, because it's just funny to see the kids sort of semi-freaked out, but then come to accept the cats, as well as the phantom. Christine shows up, and then, I I, I remember how it ends, Mr. Mistopheles comes out, and he gives a couple of his old-fashioned spins, he does. Oh, the most magical thing about Mr. Mistopheles, his spins! <laughs> to determine which show we discuss next, we will need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Gregorian, I Barely Know Her, Ian. <clears throat> Everyone ready? Then away we go! Okay, let's see where we round up here. Bam, 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 bam. Please hold. Bam, 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 bam. Hey, you know what, musical carousel? I don't appreciate it when I when I cover School of Rock and then you take me to School of Rock. The random number generator that is the musical carousel took me to School of Rock. Well, guess what? We are not doing another week of School of Rock. No, we are not! Let's do that again. Everyone ready for the sound cue? Because I'm playing it a second time. Let's go! Let's see where we wound up, shall we? Please hold. Dun 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 dun. Bum bum bum. Okay, fantastic. Good, good show. Landed on a good show. Good show. Thank God. Good show. We landed on the 1976 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. 
It ran for 6,137 performances, and that show is a chorus line, baby, yeah! So, that is our subject for next week. Thank you very much, Musical Carousel, for not dumping me at School of Rock for a third time. Thank you very much. If you want to donate to the show, you can do so via patreon.com musicalmanpod. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month, and depending on the tier that you select, you will get a variety of special incentives and bonus material. If you donate, let's say, a dollar a month, you will get a verbal shout-out each and every week from me, the musical man, Christopher, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Mirasol. Thank you very much. Yet again, thank you for donating. If you donate a dollar, you're also going to get access to a special episode I recorded regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards. Now, let's say you donate $3 a month. Well, you're going to get a musical shout-out in the style of a character or composer that you choose. You dictate who you hear from. That's true. If you donate $5 a month, you get to dictate which show I discuss on the podcast, and you get access to the first season of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera that is dedicated to the concerns, the woes, and the issues of the villains of musical theater, question mark. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get access to The Snub Club. This is a series of full-length episodes dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. In the past, we have, the again, these are monthly episodes. You get a new episode on the final Wednesday of each month. And in the past, we have discussed Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahooly, American Psycho, and Be More Chill. So if you sign up right now and you donate $10 a month, you're going to get access to all of those episodes. Our next episode in that series is going to be dedicated to Jekyll and Hyde, baby. And if you donate, that money goes toward cast recordings, movie rentals, offsetting pod bean hosting costs. If we ever get to the point where we are bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations, that will result in my producing M3, the movie musical man, in which I tackle musical movie trilogies, trios, film trios that are all linked by theme. That's right. Now, if you are listening through Apple Podcasts, go to the Apple Podcast store and write a review. Give a five-star rating and write a review. If you let me know that you have done as much, I will send you my ridiculous cover of Light My Candle from Rent. And if we ever get to a point where we have 30 ratings and or reviews through Apple Podcasts, I will review the entire Descendants trilogy. That's right, Disney's Descendants. I had originally planned for that to be a part of M3, the movie Musical Man. But if we maybe get to 30 ratings and reviews first before that $100 donation total, no matter what, either way, if we get to one of them first, that's how you're getting that material. So let's see. Challenge yourself. Tell other people. Go to Apple Podcasts and write reviews. I want to see your reviews. If you're streaming, it's through musicalmanpod.podbean.com or Stitcher. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can go to Musical Man Pod and do that thing. We have a pinned tweet that goes to a Google Sheet. You can check out our current ranking of all the shows we've ever covered. If you're just now joining us, you may not know what's number one, what's at the bottom, what's in between. So go there. You can also email me questions and hot takes at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thank you to Alex Green for your beautiful logo and to Zach Little for your beautiful music. And that is that doorbell, baby. Oh, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>